Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this weekend's UFC card. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Vivisection with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host this week, MMA Junkies, Dan Tom. Dan, filling in for Conor Rebush, who has been lost at sea, and we're all praying and hoping for his safe return. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Yeah, no, same here, man. I hope he returns too, because this is like, uh, you know, kind of like my own version of the depressed us, even though I'm already on this grind. But no, it's obviously happy to be here with you. We're here talking about the UFC on uh, UFC Vegas 56 prelim cards, headlined by a heavyweight fight between Alexander Volkov, Cherzino Rosenstreich, with a featured prelim here that we're about to dive into: women's strawweight bout, Felice Herrig. Karolina Kowalkovich 2, a fight that we had all so firmly forgotten and didn't care about that they had to make it again. Yeah, I was in attendance of this fight, and uh, I forgot it. That also has to do with my inebriation level, which we don't have to get into, but... Yeah, that and the raging Khabib fans at USC 223 who were like just checking everybody to make sure they were on the Khabib train because that's so important. Yeah, I didn't, I don't remember, I didn't remember any of this fight. I had to go back and uh, refresh. Yeah, um, it's it's also two fighters that were frankly like, I'm kind of surprised that either of them are still in the game. You know, mm-hmm. it's been two years since we've seen. It's been one year and change since we've seen Karolina Kowalkovich, who is currently riding a five-loss skid, and it has been uh, two years since we have seen, or just coming up on two years since we've seen Felice Herrick, just coming up on one year since we've seen Kowalkovich. And both women have been in the place in their career where, like, I'm not going to tell anybody to retire, but... I would not be surprised if either of them had just retired because they're not winning fights. Yeah, I, I agree. And just kind of, you know, and again, I don't like to assume or, you know, fighters or, oh, they're, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, kind of unfair, uh, unfairness with, uh, with, 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 you know, with, with all fighters, but with the ladies as well, you know, if, uh, you know, whether they're, you know, having a kid, which is neither the thing with these two or whatever reason they decide to take a break or, or move on their way out. But it does seem like you're right. I'm surprised they're still here. They both kind of seem like they were firmly on their way out, not just with momentum, but again, we talked about heavyweights having a bit of a longer leash at the top mm-hmm. of the main card show. Um, I wouldn't say it's a shorter leash, but for lightweights in general, it's a shorter lease. And, you know, women's sample size in MMA, it's still a wild one, uh, you know, if we're being realistic as far as, you know, you know, I thought maybe we could see, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe Holm does a Randy Couture and shows that, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the there's old woman strength was wrong there. Right. So it, it, it's always hard to hard to tell uh, where these ladies are going to show up, both motivation and the, the stage of their career. But stage of their career wise. Yeah, it doesn't look great motivation wise. You know, Carolina looks like she's re- again. We talked about this before. This doesn't you know, even if it's a good fit. Um, I don't know if this is her first camp, but, you know, at American top team, but that looks like the big change for her heading into this one. Um, whereas Felice, I believe still staying in Chicago. Um, maybe that's a good thing, you know, staying with her normal, her normal regiment and, 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 and whatnot there. But this fight was, was strange. I picked, um, 
Felice to win. Uh, and honestly, I, I, I don't really have a strong opinion on the decision. I don't know if, if, if you did, Zane, on the first fight. Mm. But but one of the things I remember, and I'm not like an inside source guy or air quotes that you can't see me making right now, but I did have somebody close to Karolina Kovalkiewicz's camp tell me that part of the game plan was for her to do an Imanaria role. And I was like, well, that's enough for me to not pick her. Uh, yeah. And yeah. she won, granted, but in my defense, if you go back and watch that fight, she tries senseless Imanaria roles. Um, <laughs> yeah. So again, it's, it's you know, as far as anything replicable, replicable or, or confidence, um, um, no, but maybe it's I picked the wrong person last time kind of a deal. Maybe I'm getting caught up with the new change. But I'm leaning a bit toward the physicality to Kovalkiewicz because I know that both girls have a quiet physicality in the clinch that, you know, they get talked about their striking, but they actually are quietly strong in the clinch. And if girls can beat them there, that can be a quiet coffin nail, arguably. So, yeah, I'll lean toward Carolina. All right. Yeah, this is a tough fight for me to pick. Um a lot of X factors going on here. The big one for Carolina, I mean, the the thing with Herrig is that Herrig has always had confidence issues in the cage. Always. Yeah. Yep. You know, she's a fighter who came up billed as a kickboxer, has one of those, uh, you know, sort of American alphabet soup kickboxing careers that. Mm -hmm you don't really put any weight behind, but she did it for a long time, you know. Uh, Wiki has her kickboxing record listed. They they have three fights they could actually find and confirm. But they have her, her kickboxing re record listed at 23 and 5. It's something she did for a while before getting to MMA. Yep. And in MMA, she has, her, her, her core skill set has been her wrestling and her grappling. Like, she can be a decent kickboxer when she needs to be. But the real, like, the real strength of Elise Herrick's game has been her ability to scramble and grapple with people. And, you know, there's a reason, like, her fight with Verna Jandarova, that was her first submission loss of her career. She's been a surprisingly dogged scrambler and a surprisingly confidenceless striker. And at various times, especially over the last few years, she's looked more confident as a striker. You know, about the time of that, like, uh, Alexa Grasso, uh, Justine Kish fights. Yeah. Courtney Casey really seemed like she was finding something with her hands. Yeah. And then it just kind of went away again. And that is always kind of, it just seems like the way of Harry's career, wherever her head is at, her skills follow. And that makes, it makes it hard to predict how she's going to show up in any one fight. You know she's going to be tough. You know she's not going to get put away easily. You know she's going to compete with everyone. But is she actually ever going to push a fight well enough to take it over? And that's always the toss-up. With Kovalkiewicz, she had all the confidence in the world for years and she fought with it and she was aggressive with it and it just worked for her. She pushed herself through fights and two wins that I, on a physicality level, you wouldn't necessarily mark her down for, you know, she really, 
Like I know that Rose Namajunas got a split card uh, in her loss to Kovalkiewicz, but that was a fight that Kovalkiewicz very much took over and took from Rose Namajunas. Totally. And then she got knocked out by Jessica Andrade. <laughs> and you don't want to say, you know, nobody wants to be like, oh, yeah, well, that, you know, that... You, you don't want to be the guy who responds to like everything about a fighter with that with like a highlight pick, and they're just mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, you know, Conor McGregor getting choked out by Nate Diaz. Where's your king now? Kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. But you kind of have to do that with Kovalkiewicz. Every fight she has had since that knockout loss to Jessica Andrade has looked like somebody grasping for the fighter they used to be and trying to figure out how to recapture that and trying to figure out how to get hit and not get worried about getting hit. And, you know, I, nothing about her loss to Jessica Penne even suggests that that is fixed. That fight with Penne felt like somebody throwing, you know, getting a moment's success and throwing themselves into it with complete abandon with the idea that like if oh if I don't get this minute this moment to win I'm not gonna win you know yeah 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 I I got that feeling too sorry go ahead so it's it's hard to know like the you know but the thing with so on the one hand you have somebody in Kovalkiewicz who seems like they are going to try they're try out there trying to prove that they can still be the fighter they used to be against somebody in Julie's head who might just give them infinite opportunities to try and prove it you know Herrig might just let Kovalkiewicz walk forward and press the fight and scramble grapple with her and be very 50 50 the whole way through and never actually put enough effort into any one position or any one moment to take the fight away from Kovalkiewicz even if Kovalkiewicz throws herself into bad positions because you know I noted that the submission loss to Verna Jandarova was the first uh you know finishing defeat for a fi- the first official uh, TKO or submission loss on Herrig's record. She got a scarf hold arm locked by Random Marcos on Tough, but who cares about Tough? Right. But her arm bar finish, her her submission win over Kylan Curran in 2016, you know, that's her last finish for a win. It was in 2016. Right. For that, it was an arm bar of Lisa Ellis before that, you have to go all the way back to 2011 in a TKO over somebody named Andrea Miller. Yeah, and I hate to, to talk, uh, you know, bad about a fellow Hawaiian there, but you, Kylan Curran, I mean, you want to talk about a fighter who maybe you can get away with stereotyping for their highlight reel losses, right? Yeah. Um, and you all, as well as a fighter with, again, suspect mental in her own head, uh, giving up the neck and giving up the back like that. And that, that was the last finish in over half a decade. Um. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree with that and why that would would lead to probably a lot of 50-50 position, uh, grappling scenarios that we're probably going to get. Yeah, so I'm very much, you know, I see a toss-up fight here, and I, you know what, I'm just going to 
I am I'm gonna do the foolish thing and I'm going to pick not only based on the pat the last time they met, but I'm gonna pick based on current record and just say that Carolina Kvalkovich can't lose six fights in a row. Right. Yeah. Like that would just be absurd. And I'm gonna so I'm gonna pick her. Just like she's not gonna she's not gonna lose another fight after losing five straight. That would just be too depressing, too outside the laws of fate. I don't know. But I think we're headed towards like a real another really tight split decision. Sam Alvey has entered the chat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, remember that? Remember that? Remember that what you just said next on the Sam Alvey fights? Because you know he's getting booked again, or if not already. <laughs> it's true. But like I feel you though. I feel you. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, Karolina Kavalkovich was at one point a much better fighter than Sam Alvey. <laughs> Well, she was. Yeah, it's true. It's true. You know, Sam Alvey never sniffed something like a title shot. Like, Sam Alvey has always been like this weird negative, detracting from the fight, one punch counter knockout artist who otherwise will just sort of drift around and let whatever happens to him happen. Kowalkovich used to be a very process driven, aggressive, functional. You know, she'd get hit a lot, but she knew she could take it and come back with volume and with clinch aggression and with some decent scrambling grapples in there, too. Like, no, totally. She, she, she'll actually follow an opponent and like float to their back, uh, as opposed yeah. to Alvi will just kind of awkwardly stand over them as they fail yeah. to take him down. Sam <laughs> Alvi's never gra- grappled with anything more difficult than a pen shaver. <laughs> Poor Eric yeah. Spicely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. Yeah. So I'm I'm just gonna say that fate will intervene and not let Kovalkovich win lose six straight fights. You and me both. Um, but yeah, I expect a 50-50 toss-up fight where both women struggle to, you know, where where Kovalkovich tries so hard that she gives up positions to Herrig that Herrig can have success with and pushes herself out of good successful moments of the fight and where Herrig then just doesn't capture the momentum that those positions should mean and lets them go and loses. All right. Herrig opened at plus 100, dropped to minus 160, is currently at minus 126. Kovalkovich opened at plus minus 120, jumped up to plus 140, is currently down at plus 103. I guess it should just be a coin toss. Nothing about Herrig's recent fights suggest that she should be a favorite in this and of course you can't really pick Kovalkovich at all. Totally. All right. Uh that brings us to a lightweight bout Alex De Silva versus Joe Selecki. And um I Alex De Silva I don't know that I have a secret affinity for Alex De Silva. But he is one of those fighters that I think Nobody really has paid any attention to it all. And so I'm like the only person that ever has recognized what his <laughs> MMA game is. I don't I don't wanna I, I don't wanna say that like, oh, I'm some sort of torch carrier here, but like he's a pretty good wrestler. And that yeah. is 
that is the core of his game. And I think it's a surprise to everybody that fights him and everybody that watches it. Because certainly all the commentary talk about when they watch him fight is like his kickboxing. And he comes out of that Astra fight team that, you know, produced Tyler Santos and Darren Till and other notable uh, power kickboxers. But really, Silva, everything, every part of his, and he's got a bunch of knockouts too coming into the, to the UFC. But a pretty much any hard fight he has will always end up with him wrestling. It is, it is the core fundamental safety valve of his game that his kickboxing almost always serves as a gateway to getting to his wrestling game. And it's not a bad wrestling game. He was able to out-wrestle Brad Riddell for large stretches of that fight. But yeah. it is not a deep wrestling game either. It is very much... You know, there's not a a wealth of like mat return talent or keeping people down and doing damage talent. It is very much a getting on top and then trying to hold one or two positions and just slow the fight down as a wrestler. It is not there's no end point to his wrestling game. It doesn't functionally lead him anywhere. He's got some rear naked chokes in there early in his career. But he's not a good enough submission artist. Even if he can do, get to a back take position in the cage, I think he got to a pretty good one with Riddell for a while. He's not a, the the kind of submission artist that you just are like, oh man, Alex De Silva's got your back. He's gonna make that into he, that. Now you're in trouble. It's just like, okay, well, he's probably gonna backpack you for a while, and it's up to you to fight your way out of it. Um. And the the result is kind of a fighter who, if he's just a better wrestler than you and you don't have an easy answer for that, or even a difficult answer for that, Brad Riddell didn't have an easy answer for the wrestling, but he had a tough one. He was willing to just battle through it all the way. It, it he, You're going to lose to Alex De Silva if you just are out there to let him out-wrestle you. If you can grapple with him and out wrestle him, then you can beat him because he's always going to give you a wrestling and grappling game to work with. And it's hard to look at that in a fight with somebody like Joe Selecki and not think that Joe Selecki comes out on top. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And, uh, Man, I, I really wanted to help you out with I had a, a note on Astro Fight Team Note myself, and now I'm kind of drawing blanks on it. But I don't disagree with anything what you said. And I do wonder if that wrestling comes from whoever is in charge of their Muay Thai there, because yeah. a lot of it, you know, not not just, you know, with Darren Till, of course. Um, but uh, a lot of these guys, even like not positional guys, but more active guys, even like uh, Alberto Udo, who was more of a wild man and didn't last much in the UFC. But uh, I wonder that the comfortability in the clinch can, you know, makes it easier to translate to that. And then 
it's not a jujitsu game, despite it being a Brazilian camp, because they're a real big Luta Livre. Uh, they really like yeah. to stand the Luta Livre, right? Like both De Silva and Till have purple belts uh, under in Luta Livre under uh, whatever coaches there. I don't have his name on hand, but the point is. Um, it's translatable because not just from the clinch, then you've got a grappling game that's much more top uh, and wrestling centric. Yeah. So those two kind of wrestling arts can merge into a, like you said, not the most deepest wrestling game, but a, but a, but a pretty dang functional one for MMA. Yeah. Um, so that's a great that's a great note there. But I also agree. Ultimately, you're playing into the wheelhouse where, you know, granted, you know, obviously Jared Gordon can wrestle and he beat granted by split um, Joe Selecki, which it was a close fight. But I don't have an, an issue with it. I know it came yeah. down to just a couple punches. Um, but part of the reason and I was deathly wrong. Uh, I don't know if I had that anti Grant Dawson bias going on. Like like I think you, you've admitted yourself in the mm-hmm. past. Oh, saying, yeah. But uh, I, I took a flyer on Gordon there, and, and particularly because of his his wrestling and really, um, you know, it's really you know it, it, it's really quietly good. A lot of it's very freestyle or folk style, I should say, centric. Um, but you know, as far as like his wizards, his separations of grips, his awareness of hips, like he was doing a lot of stuff to make it very difficult. And I don't think that uh, Alex De Silva, though underrated, like I agree with you, Zane. I, I don't think he's on that level. So yeah, ultimately. Um, with the wrestling stuff, he can wrestle himself into a hole like uh, Charles Oliveira kind of fall into a guillotine. And, you know, maybe in this case, a front headlock to a back take, which is more Selecki speed. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to look for here. And I'll take Selecki. Yeah, I mean, a big part of it with De Silva that, you know, the reason that he would lose or that, uh, you know, I wouldn't compare him to a fighter like Gordon and what Gordon can do with Joe Selecki. Because Joe Selecki had a lot of he had a lot of success early in that fight with Gordon. Yeah, sure. Um but Gordon's a pace fighter. He, you know, he's a fighter who doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't have the bit. He, he doesn't have a big, strong physique. He's not putting a lot of energy into carrying around those beach muscles. He's not a super athlete. He's a dude who prides himself on having a ton of cardio, going into a really hard fight, pushing a hard fight with his opponent, and coming out down the stretch with a way to win. Right. And yeah, totally. That's something that he could do with Joe Selecki to wear out Joe Selecki, even if Joe Selecki is a better wrestler and grappler than him. Just being hard to submit and being willing to tangle and have a hard fight with Selecki over and over, because Selecki's a pretty—he's he, a pretty func- minimal function kickboxer, rather. Like his—he his, has learned enough boxing to keep it safe for him when he has to do it. But if you can keep a pace on him, he's not a comfortable stand-up striker at all. And for Gordon, you know, all he had to do was just keep forcing Selecki to have a hard fight. And eventually, Selecki would end up trapped in the kind of, in areas of the fight that he didn't want to have. Alex De Silva can't do that. Notably, one of the big problems for him has been that he can start really hot and then he starts to lose a step. He's not a deep, natural, confident wrestler. He's just a pretty good one who does it a lot. And the deeper the fight goes, the the slower his shot gets. The more his game starts to wear out and the more he starts to get forced to, like, you know, he had the same problem with Brad Riddell. Brad Riddell is a great pace fighter. Brad, Brad Riddell is a dude who, it doesn't seem like it should be because he pushes an impossible fight on people, goes through absolute hell, but Riddell will just 
keep fighting, keep figuring things out, keep working, keep problem solving. And all the way to the end of the fight, you might be, he might be worn out, you might be worn out, but he is throwing power. He has mm-hmm. your timing. He has all the right ideas by the time the fight is over. Yeah. And the Silva, you know, he doesn't have that ability to keep up with that kind of fight because he runs out of ideas really quick. And I think, you know, with Selecki, he's just going to meet somebody who has more tools and more to work with on the mat. And it's going to be hard for him to keep to to figure out ways to keep his game functional if he can't just go to the wrestling all the time. And that small cage is really even going to funnel this dynamic yeah. even more, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got to pick uh, Joe Selecki here. Odds on the fight. Let's see, Selecki is the favorite, opened at minus 240, currently up at minus 172. Silva opened at plus 205, currently down at plus 143. It's a little too bad for Alex Silva because I like, you know, I do like his game. I do like what he's built. It's He's not a bad kickboxer. He's not a bad wrestler. He's not even a bad grappler. There's just no depth to any of it. There's no one point where you're like, oh, yeah. If he gets you in this position, that that fight's over. You know, if you have to stand with Alex Da Silva, he's going to chew you up and piece you up. If you have to, if you let him wrestle you, He's just going to wrestle you all day. It's like, no, he's a, he's a better wrestler than people think in the wrestling. It's the backbone of what makes him functional in the cage, but it's not, not a deep enough wrestling game to, to, do more, to do anything with outside of bad wrestlers. You know, you're a bad wrestler. He will out-wrestle you all day. If you're a functional wrestler and a functional grappler, he'll run out of ideas. Don't disagree with that. Um, do find the do find the line movement uh, interesting though. Probably you know I would say it's it's a bit adjusting, but yeah, mm. don't disagree with anything you said. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it is interesting that it started really wide on Selecki and it's getting closer. Like Selecki's, you know, he he has limitations to his game that we've seen, but it does seem like it's just a skill for skill fight here. Right. It's going to play well for him. Anyway, uh, that yep. brings us to a featherweight bout. Damon Jackson, Daniel Argueta. And, um, yeah, take it, take it away. Yeah, I'm, I'm bad. I didn't watch The Ultimate Fighter. I have not watched a full season since whatever Amir Sadala was on. And then I mm-hmm. dabbled a bit on Tough 10 for the heavyweights. Um, and I don't go back to watch it because kind of like Zane said earlier, uh, in my short version, after The Ultimate Fighter. But no, it's, it's you're getting different fighters. <laughs> you said that, uh, not me. I mean, I don't like okay. it either. But <laughs> All right, all right. I'm putting words in his mouth to try to have him sit in my, my pool here. But you don't really get, in all seriousness, even for what we do, you don't really get a lot of great information because they're not with their coaches. Yeah. There's quick turnarounds, crazy weight cuts, people fighting outside their weight class, so on and so forth. But Tercios, as we know, is a very uh, scrambly and back to what we're talking about, more of a pace fighter guy. Now, I don't know if you want to call Jackson a pace fighter because he has definitely had growing pains of wrestling himself into holes uh, yeah. coming up. 
Uh, and, and you could, you know, also blame that for maybe not having much of a game to go on. He did get into the UFC ra- rather early. You see some early uh, uh, safe Sayud, by the way, when you go back and watch those Damon Jackson fights uh, or Walton Goggins, as I should say, you know, because uh, Damon Jackson on the shield, baby, or, you know, uh, justified. <laughs> um, you know, he was also doing that. You got to remember Quentin Tarantino used him for some movies, but now he's back in the UFC. Um and and he's got a much more com- I don't know what's much more complete, but you know we we keep talking about confidence here. It's kind of like a quiet factor in some of these matchups, engaging on where guys are at or what kind of happened in some matchups. But um, I feel like he's just overall much more confident uh, about I've about always, that. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say I've always felt Damon Jackson fights with a lot of anger. There's a lot of rage in his fighting in the cage. A lot of like just raw pent up mm. emotion and he's i think he's over time he's gotten you know he's, he's fought a lot he's gotten you know one of the things like just fighting a lot is gonna make anybody better unless you have like a severe learning problem just doing the thing a lot is gonna make people better and I think a lot of that comfort has come to Jackson with that. And there's a lot of confidence that he's built in with his channeling, his aggression and his anger. But it's always like every Damon Jackson fight feels like a, an emotional process. You know, he, he feels, he seems like a fighter who really, and, and you know, he's learned to function well with it, but he really wears himself on his sleeve when he's out there in the cage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, that's not the Jackson I'm worried about. The Jackson I'm yeah. worried about is on the other side. Uh, it's Dan Argueta's side because he is a Jackson and Wink fighter. <laughs> um, and uh, you, you see that in his resume that he came up in this system, too, which I don't know if I feel any better about because on his I would little, not feel better about that. Yeah, on his resume, it's Jackson Wink, amateur team national champion. And his job before fighting was a wrestling coach and construction worker, though – no uh, collegiate wrestling accolades that I could find. Obviously, he wrestled enough to coach. But again, I don't know about uh, wrestling um, in a small cage or having enough uh, space to do the preset rote combination work of the Jackson Wink fighter in the small cage. Doesn't work great, as we've been seeing. Um, so uh, without seeing this guy fight or seeing his LFA Bantam uh, weight championship fights, um, yeah, I got to assume he's in over his head. And this is just a matchup, by, by the way, Zane. Now, this is what, the one I was mainly talking about as far as like, why did they even book this? Like, is this short notice for someone? Yeah, like, this I don't... is short notice. It was supposed to be Damon Jackson, Derek Minner, which is okay. a great fight. Because, you know, you want to talk about somebody else who fights with a lot of anger and emotion. Yeah. Derek Minner is that dude. Oh, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, Minner suffered a concussion in training. Oof. And it's had okay. been pulled for this from this. So uh, Argueta is a short notice call up. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense on the number too. Not that I wouldn't yeah. confidently pick Jackson here, which I am. But okay, that makes sense. Yeah, picking Jackson confidently. Yeah. Um. I mean, there will always be. There's always. Re- there's always reason to sound some notes of caution with Damon Jackson because because he does fight with anger and aggression. Like, you know, there's a reason all of his losses are finished losses. Yeah. He throws himself at people. He throws himself at people with reckless abandon. And that's always going to be a kind of style that can get you caught and countered hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That said, it's tended to really only be guys who hit, who are pretty good athletes that hit really hard that have actually turned 
catching him into something. You know, Kevin Aguilar is notable a uh, regional power puncher didn't didn't have as much success with it in the UFC, but uh, getting bulldog choked by Yancey Medeiros, who's huge even at lightweight for somebody right. in Jackson who's a natural featherweight, Movid Kabbalaya with a flying knee right out of the gate in PFL, and then Ilya Tapuria with that massive body head combo that he yeah yeah smacked. Jackson with and that's it like they're you know they're, they're not bad losses to have they're just they they speak to the kind of aggression that Jackson fights with and Argueta is if nothing else he's bricked up he in in a ideal he, he's a bantamweight by trade uh in an ideal world it, well I wouldn't say in an ideal way. In a heavier cutting world, he would probably be a flyweight. Uh, sure. He's kind of got that Joby build. He's five. Yeah, yeah, I know. can see that. Yeah. Five foot seven, so he doesn't. He's not quite as short, which is probably why he's a he's a bantamweight instead. Right. Because he's got that same level of bricked upness. Yeah, definitely bricked up looking. Um. So there might be some natural power where. where Damon Jackson could just throw himself onto a strike and uh, get put out. But you look at you look at Argueta's career, and there aren't a lot of knockouts on there. And the big reason for that, watching him fight, is that he fights with a real, real lack of an urgency. And a lot of he, I, I get you know you want fighters to be confident. And he's never lost. So it's hard to argue against the confidence he's had. He has. But Argueta fights with the confidence of somebody who has not yet paid for the mistakes they're making. He reminds me a lot of, um, oh man, who's the former middleweight who had that hellacious fight with James Krause and his then made a weird move to wrestle or to well oh, Tre- uh, Trevin G- Giles. Trevin yeah. Giles. Yep. Yeah. He, remind, he fights a lot like Trevin Giles. Okay. Oh wow. All right. Where it's just like very hands down, chin out, some some natural speed and power that he knows he has and he's very confident about, but also like just drifting out of the pocket on a slow arc where you're like, dude, you can get hit really hard doing this. <laughs> and you're just not paying for it yet. You're not fighting people good enough to make you pay for it. And I think Damon Jackson, like, especially with Jackson's aggression, like, even if he can't out-wrestle Argueta, he's just going to bully him and push him and you know, go after him and throw hard at him and just make this fight ugly and nasty. And I don't think that Argueta's got the depth of skill yet to, to make that work. You know, I don't, I don't see him being able at five foot seven to just easily out wrestle Jackson and get a back take and get a rear naked choke. And if he can't do that, you know, is he going to, control him or is he going to fall into the same kind of you know like i don't even have to see the ricky tercios fight to know why he lost to ricky right. Tercios. yeah you know like 
and Jackson can have that kind of fight while being bigger and stronger and even a more functional puncher than Ricky Tercios is. Tercios, Tercios has that like mini Keith Jardine thing going on. Right. <laughs> yeah. You look like it looks like somebody <laughs> took great. a gear out of him and <laughs> it's just a hitch in everything he does. <laughs> yeah. He's out there moving like not quite like a metal gear walker like Jardine was, yeah. but yeah, pretty it's pretty dang pretty close. close. <laughs> so I, yeah, I got to pick Jackson. Argueta is getting a, uh, he's getting a jump into the UFC, but it feels like there's a, there's a learning curve that he's going to have to go through and it'll probably be a Bantamweight and it'll, Bantamweight will not be kinder to him in the UFC. UFC's Bantamweight division is not a kind place. So I, I hope that I have to see big leaps and jumps in his skill over time, but talking about being worried about a guy coming up in the Jackson Wink system you know, like yeah. Lando Venata is right there. That <laughs> right. is a dude that we like. He entered the UFC, and you're like, oh man, imagine if this dude improves. What? what, what imagine him on a full camp. Yeah, and he just <laughs> seven years later, you're like, man, imagine if this dude improves. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, and and um, let's be honest. I, I agree with the the, the bantamweight to featherweight note, where it's like featherweight. You're probably going to find less urgent fighters that are going to force the action out of you. With uh, you know, maybe even a slightly less knockout rate if that still holds true yeah. between bantamweight to featherweight. But Jackson, albeit you know he doesn't have that bantamweight speed and knockout power that you're going to see down there, he is one of the more urgent featherweights who, even with the way he strikes and spazzes and scrambles, like the spats of control that he could get. Like, I don't know how much he's really going to score with it other than the judge's eyes with a guy like Jackson either, who's going to yeah. be making him work and work for everything he gets probably. Yep. Jackson's just, he, he has learned to channel his tech. You know, he's got enough experience and technique now at this point that he's not an easy fighter to take off his game. And he's learned to channel his aggression to constantly create functional offense. He's a hard fighter to beat. There's a reason he's only lost four times in his career, despite not being a great athlete and being knockoutable. Yep. There's also a reason he's always typecasted as some kind of a bad guy or a badass. So we'll mm-hmm. go with Walt, Walton Goggins here for the win. All right. Jackson is a huge favorite here. Open at minus 200, dropped to minus 270. He's currently out of minus 529. Uh, Argueta opened at plus 170, is currently up at plus 381. I will at this point sound a note of caution. Damon Jackson is not the kind of fighter who should ever be up in the minus five or 600 range. Like I just said, not a great athlete with not the best chin. Like there is a hard Damon Jackson ceiling out there in the universe that he has encountered several times before now. And it, you know, yeah, I think he's going to win this fight and I would, it would be foolish to pick against him, but like, no, he's not, you know, he also is going to have, like, hard competitive fights with Charles Rosa. Like, there's just, it's not, he's not the kind of fighter that you want to just bank on, like, oh, yeah, Damon Jackson, instant, like, put all my money there. Yeah, he looks like he's being he's anchoring the parlays this weekend, which is always yeah. just, which is always just a red flag in general with MMA. Exactly. Like, I'm not saying that he shouldn't be favored to win, but just if he lost, it would not be the most shocking upset in the world. 
I would not be like, oh my god, Daniel Argueta beat Damon Jackson. How? Be like, well, yeah, that's going to happen to Damon Jackson every now and then. Sure, sure. You know? All right. That brings us to our prelim mirror match. Benoit Saint-Denis against Nicholas Stoltze at lightweight of all things. And, um... Yeah. Yeah, I, both these guys moving down a division. I don't know why. Um, they're both, you know, Stolte six one, Saint Denis is five eleven. I don't think size was the big problem for Saint Denis against uh, Eliza Zaleski. More just getting thrown absolutely to the wolves. And uh, for Stoltze, size was not... I mean, Jared Gooden is surprisingly big. But he's an inch shorter than Nicholas Stoltze. And Stolte, like the, the problem was not size against Gooden or Emiv for Stoltze. It's that talking about this with uh, Dan Ige a bit on the main card, Stoltze has absolutely no range game whatsoever. And he's not a wrestler. And so he just barrels into people over and over again. And if they can time him for takedowns or for strikes, he's always going to be open to get hit really hard. Yeah, yeah. I, um, by the way, uh, on the weight note, uh, at least St. Denise had a catch weight. Um, that's been south of 170, which was 165, sure. and that ended in a no contest. But they both have fought at middleweight before. Have had catch weights north of 170, so that's a huge red flag alone. But yeah, as far as the technical side, I always I, I agree. I, I don't disagree, and, and didn't have like the highest ceiling. And I'm usually more of a fan of process based fighters than um, opportunists, whether they're athletic or weird, gangly ones. Yeah, I will but, say just a real quick note. Yeah, I'm looking down Saint Denis' record. Apparently, he had a featherweight bout what i cannot imagine the man must have been a skeleton oh wow i'm seeing that too what the f- yeah it was right in between a well yeah i don't he, that, he that fought at middleweight and then his next fight was at welterweight and then his next fight was at featherweight that's weird that it, is really strange him a little more but but still say it's like where what are you what are, what are you cutting from and um yeah. i i had this weird inkling that he could be a guy that could get some uh you know, and maybe that's where it is here, although I, I I wouldn't consider it the biggest upset, although it technically would be since he's technically the underdog, not to step on the odd segment. But um, Stolte always had the vibe of like a guy who could maybe just get an upset and like undeserving win, you know, and like random uh, highlight kind of a deal. But then yeah. I felt less confident about those feels after seeing the uh, his two fights in the UFC um, play out. Um, whereas St. Denis, I get why, you know, and not to step on it, I get why money's coming in on him, but and and I guess I can get why he's favored, and I'm spoiler alert leaning that way. But I just I'm not sure what they're basing it off of because and you know I do betting for part of my beat, and I'm I'm very forthcoming with it and all that stuff and yada 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 yada. I take take it you know um you know I guess as, as seriously as you can, but at the same time. I'm very forthcoming to go. Is this? It is the stupid. You're absolutely right, Zay. When you talk, it is the stupidest thing to bet on MMA. And you, if you want to know one of one of one million reasons, is because like, for example, like 
yeah, I had a uh, Holly Holm in my parlays. And by the way, I, I could care less. I actually, you know, uh, was, was more overall happy that she wasn't rewarded for that because sure. me as a better was like, yeah, I wouldn't mind a gift, but like, if I'm going to get mad at Puna Soriano getting jacked by the judges over Nick Maximoff for cage pushing, I cannot get mad when that happens here. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of back to in rounding that, you know, um, you know, rounding that back to, I guess, I guess this point, although I kind of lost, lost off the train tracks there. Oh yeah. Why betting is stupid, but, uh, okay. So that, that bet's fine. That, that's fine. I have no issue, but, but here, here, here's, here are the bets that, that, that I, I, I have a propensity to, 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 to happen because again, this is what happens when you bet on MMA folks. I, like many people had a, uh, you know, I was like, wait, you're going to give me plus money odds for Elise, uh, easy dos Santos to beat this short notice guy on, on, on a, a French BJJ champion guy on, on short notice. I was like, I'll take that any day of the week. And those of us who had that inside the distance ticket were just like sick to our stomachs and feeling bad for St. Denis <laughs> by the end of it. Yeah. Like that was just one of the grossest, you know, but that is, that is what happens when you, and that's what you deserve to happen to you if you bet on this super stupid sport. So, so side lesson there, but that aside, I don't know why that justifies him as a favorite here. Um, but yeah. I will, I, I will say, you know, he did show, you know, some decent, um, some Focus. striking. Yeah. Well, I would say some, some decent, uh, returns and whatnot, but again, it's, yeah. it's he was returning because he had to, it's like that whole thing, like, Oh, but Brian Ortega did good against Volkanovsky in the fifth round. Like that was a bit overblown where, you know, you, you're getting, you know, sandblasted most of the rounds. And then it's that overcompensating human nature where you get a little yeah. success the other way and you naturally, the narrative you want to overcompensate. It's not, it wasn't that much success. So I don't know where the confidence goes, which is probably why he's getting bet down, but I will reluctantly pick St. Denis. Yeah. I mean, the thing with St. Denis is I think if we want to take any lesson away from that Zaleski fight, if you want to take any positive away from it, and I always uh, my one of my major cautions is always to never overrate how good a fighter is based on how well they did in a loss. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. losing is still losing. You, mm-hmm. you you never want to watch a fighter lose and then be like, oh yeah, but you know, their their grappling actually looked really good for a few minutes in there, so I think they're gonna win this next fight. Like, just remember that they still lost. And not saying you never pick somebody who just lost because we have to here. Both these guys just lost. Um, but it's always, you know, not to, don't try to always check the success that you saw against the fact that they still lost the fight. But if we want to take a good takeaway from Benoit Saint Denis' debut, it's that he clearly walked into that fight having, I mean, he walked into that fight having never lost that before. And he fought with the confidence all the way through of somebody who had never lost before. You know, they talked about him being jittery, intense or whatever, but he was getting crushed out there and he still stepped in and threw right back. You know, he still fought with this idea of like, you know what, I might be able to turn this around. If I just keep fighting and keep pushing, I might be able to win this fight. Even when he was based, his brain was basically just operating on automatic. And that's good. Like that is, if you're looking at something that if you're looking at something that you want to see as a baseline of how can somebody improve? Can they be coached? Can they, do they have something to build off of? I mean, you, you don't want to say that mindlessness is a very coachable state to be in, but 
like a guy, uh, if you're looking at positive fighter attributes, somebody who has no regard for their own safety, like that is one of the best prospect attributes you can have. You that know? is very, it's, it's sad, but true for sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you want to mold and work with a guy who is already insane and who is already going to go out there and fight with aggression and confidence all the time. Cause building confidence into somebody is really hard to do. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, but the, everything else about Benoit St. Denis game is kind of a blank slate. Like, he, he has some power, he has some strength, he has some physicality, his striking is really reactive, instinctual, not well-schooled. Um, there's, you know, some wrestling and grappling in there, too, some instincts, some some physicality in the clinch, some takedown instincts, some grappling instincts, some things that he's been obviously been training to do a lot of these things for a long time, but you can also tell that a lot of the quality that he gets out of those things is out of being stronger than people and having people that can't fight him off and they can't compete with him physically in the cage. And then he gets to do what he wants. Yeah. So it's hard it's hard to know what will fall out of that out of a fight with Stolte. Like, yeah, you know, Stolte's pretty big. He's pretty physical. He's not an untalented, you know, he he made that fight every moment he got standing with Ramazan Amiv, he made that fight hell on Ramazan Amiv. He took full advantage of the fact that Amiv is not a a fast-paced striker standing. Yep. To just dive in recklessly and throw strikes. He's got better form. He's got better instincts for his strikes than saint denis does i would say i agree too and you know amiv obviously didn't have the punching power to um you know well i mean not to not win but you know as far as to not and not to not knock him out like it would happen in his next fight either um but enough to you know uh be a be a credible uh a credible threat there and saint denis obviously only has one um knockout to his so it's a lot of a lot of grappling again you know um a lot, a lot, a lot of grappling in that special forces combat. A lot of these, like yeah. all combatives guys that come over, and, and he did the French version of that. Then did the French, did some kind of French uh, BJJ tournament and won that. But no ranks listed. Stolte a purple belt and seventeen and three in kickboxing. But I was just watching his get up technique against Jared Gooden, who is a brown belt, who at least in the beginning really looks. He tries to sell out hard to lock him down, mm-hmm. and I really like that get up from Stolte. Um, I'd, I'd have to see, I'd have to watch more of this fight, but, uh, you know what? I'm actually going to, going to swing my pick around. Cause even re- regardless if I pick St. Denis, this would be from a gambling perspective, a definite, uh, as they say, a dog or pass spot. Like you probably just don't even want to put your money on this sort of thing. But if yeah. you do, I, I wouldn't be laying the chalk down, especially at that opener, you know, which I don't want to step on at what St. Denis opened at. But uh, you know what? I'm gonna go go with uh, I'm gonna go with Stolze here. It looks like he's been uh, not just for this camp, but like for the last you know uh, months and months on end down here in, in Las Vegas uh, training. Um, I don't know if that'll make a difference or not, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go with Stolze here just to uh, get two out of the three rounds for doing more impressive stuff in the judges' eyes, despite Benoit Saint Denis maybe doing more, taking up more of the round with positive work. Well, just for the sake of disagreement, then, I'm going to stick with St. Denis. Cool. Um, 
I I do think that Schultz has got the better instincts for striking. I think he's he's got the better training for striking. He's got the better ingrained sort of you know being able to throw jump knees, being able to throw hooks with tight form, things like that. Um, but the crashing in and the fighting his way out of range uh, is a big problem for him. Not yeah. having a distance game. And I think that it'll let St. Denis just kind of slow this fight down and make it a grueling pace like he wants. And against Gooden, you know, it just got like that crashing in all the time. Just it ended up getting Stolte hurt and hit really hard on the counter over and over again. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to bank on St. Denis' toughness to just kind of see him through an ugly, gritty win where he gets enough control to make it happen. But I, you know, I like Stoltz's, I like, I like what he does when he gets his chances. I like what he does when he, I like what he makes out of the opportunities he has standing. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very fair, it's a, it to me is a coin flip pick. St. Denis, I, I don't trust, he, he seems, he's a very raw fighter who probably shouldn't be in the UFC right now. And Stoltze is an action fighter who is probably not going to be here very long, but, you know, is also very much feels like the fighter he was always going to be at this point. Yeah, I agree. I, I suspect we'll get some more of a fight between both of how we predicted, and it'll be up to the judges to decide what yep. they felt was more uh, meaningful. Yep. Let's see what we got here. Stoltze opened at... Plus plus two thirty five and dropped straight down to plus one twenty one is currently a plus one thirty one. Saint Denis opened at minus two seventy five, jumped up to minus one fifty, is currently minus one fifty eight. So because I can't really imagine a lot of functional offense coming out of Saint Denis as to how he will win this fight, but I can see a lot of ways that Stoltz will create to lose this fight. Sure. Especially giving positions alone, just that's yeah. a huge. You're right. It's a huge problem for him. Yeah. All right. That brings us to a bantamweight bout: Tony Gravely, Johnny Munoz Jr. And um, this is a kind of a tough fight to call because Johnny Munoz is a bit. Uh, I don't know. I don't really. He's put a lot into his striking and his striking is pretty anemic feeling. Like it just doesn't. I don't know what to make of Johnny Munoz Jr. Tony Gravely, he's basically just a wrestle boxer from 2007. But. <laughs> yes, I no, I agree. I. I haven't been able to go back and run Johnny Munoz Jr. through the proverbial comb. So I'm going off of my memory off of his fights with uh, Nate Manis and uh, Jamie Simmons, which is even less of a memory, and that's the one he actually won. But uh, you, yeah. you're right. I do think that the small cage helps kind of disguise, um, you know, uh, helps us uh, not – you know, makes it difficult for us to weed out maybe his striking process and more of a feel for him on the feet and therefore as a whole. Yeah, um, like for whatever. He, in that, that Simmons fight, he leaned heavy on the jab. That was really like we're seeing an evolution of his striking game, but it wasn't like there was a lot behind it other than the jab. It was just sort of, okay, this is the new trick I've learned. I'm just going to do this a lot. 
Yeah, no, totally. I, I, there's a bit of that too, obviously developing, but, um, you know, when I look at his accolades, for, for whatever reason, I always want to associate with this guy with a wrestler, maybe on the broadcast. I don't try to listen to commentary much these days, so forgive me. Maybe that's where maybe it uh it bleed it bleeded in. But he's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. And mm-hmm. it makes sense that he's uh placed on a lot of IBJJF because it's it's definitely more of a positional game, which maybe is why as well I uh you know that I got confused a bit with uh, maybe he did he did some wrestling. Um it's a little unclear in his bio here. But here's the thing is like I I I get why Gravely's favorite in this matchup, mm-hmm. um, as far as just what we know stylistically. But I also get why he's not as maybe a big of a favorite as at least I. I don't know about you, Zane. At least I initially think he should be at this matchup, and that's partially because, and I'm sure you get the similar vibe that it constantly, even in, in fights that he wins, and I pick Gravely to win. It still feels like he's constantly walking a tightrope, like he's about to give it away. Yeah, I mean, like I said, he's kind of straight out of you know. He, he and uh, oh, who's the guy they cut? Um, uh, Miles Johns. Like they were, ju- they both yes. felt like guys yeah. out of just like two thousand seven. You know, they we should have gotten the Tony Gravely Miles Johns mirror match of these two old school power wrestle boxers who do nothing but throw huge overhands and shoot power doubles and then get to aggressive top positions that they lose pretty quickly trying to land big ground and pound strikes. Yep. Yes. And you know, that could be problematic against Munoz who not just the BJJ black belt, but like at least on paper, half his submission wins are off his back. But as is the case, I'm sure as you know, doing doing this, you know, forever now, Zane, is that most of those off your back submissions, especially in the men's divisions, they not so coincidentally happen early in the career and against not great competition. Yeah. If you actually yeah. go look who that was against. So I don't know how much weight to put into that. Again, he strikes me, which is smartly so, as most people when they gravitate more in the MMA career, more, you know, he, he's much better from top position. Um, but unless gravely, you know, which is which is possible that he can both a gas out, make a mistake, and get hurt. I mean, all three of those things can happen to Gravely. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um. And and then we see a much different dynamic, uh, a shift in the fight. I feel like that's that's always going to be there, but uh, it's hard to predict because I admittedly don't know a lot about Munoz. I pretty much gave you what I got on him, and I'm still going to side with the favorite and Gravely here by probably decision. Yeah, it's. I mean, I expect Gravely to come out and have a good early fight. Um. He almost always does. Like, you know, he comes out with power. He comes out with double legs. He comes out with that kind of aggression. It's just, it's going to get really predictable. And Munoz is a back take special. You know, I think the best part yes. of his game is his yeah. back take. Yep. And he's a good wrestler himself when he can get it working. I don't know that that's actually going to help him in this fight. Right. Even, even when he uh, gets tired, Gravely is still a pretty good wrestler. That's hard to take off his game. But when Gravely loses, he loses by submission. Whether it's Pat Sabatini or Ricky mm-hmm. Bandejas or Manny Bermudez or Patchy Mix or Brett Johns, other than getting uh, knocked out by Nate Manis. Um, but like, and they're, they're all good grapplers, but Johnny Munoz isn't a bad grappler. And he didn't get knocked out by Nate Manis, you know? Yeah. There is that to, to be said for him. Like that, 
that fight he had with with Nate Manis was mostly him controlling Nate Manis while getting outstruck, you know, getting early takedowns, getting good positions, otherwise just cage pushing and holding him against the fence. I'm I'm happy Manis won that fight. I don't want to get that twisted because it was a decision I think a lot of people thought that Munoz deserved. No, yeah, I, I agree with you there. Yeah, but um, it you know there's. There's a lot of insistence. There's a lot of base structural ideas of how to be a good fighter in Johnny Munoz's game, and they're not yet come together to being a consistent, dangerous fighter. Right now, Gravely's the guy who has he has the clear pro, he has the clear process. It's just a very old school process. You know, it's the overhand into the double leg. Munoz, we saw last fight, he came out and he's like pumping his jab. He's trying to get that working. He's forcing his opponent into bad shots and then gets a submission. He landed 19% of his strikes. That's miserable. You know, the striking is very much a work in progress, trying to figure out how to be a functional striker kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, totally. And against Manis, he came out and he had, he controlled him. He was able to out wrestle him for stretches. He was able to, get good positions, but he couldn't turn that into easy functional offense. And so it's it's really hard to know how things are collecting for Munoz as he goes along. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I will add real quick that I think the height differential actually hurts him here, especially coupled with the notes you're saying. Because I'm not, I'm, I'm just reviewing the uh, Munoz fight with with Jamie Simmons, one I remember least. And you're right, not even just the, the the spamming of the jab, but you see him going through the mental checklist, like, oh, keep my shoulders. I'm, I'm that's what I'm working on. I'm working on yeah. having my shoulders up to protect me, which is a a little bit more of an it's something you should should know before you get to the UFC. But it is a little bit more of an advanced thing to come later. And you're like, you're seeing him kind of go through a checklist of developing that. And against a shorter guy who's going to be bombing from below and be the better wrestler from what I can see. Yeah, I, I, I'll pick gra- Gravely by decision, but I think it's going to, I think you'd, I mean, be, I, you'd be sweating if you're holding a Gravely ticket. Yeah, the thing is, like, Munoz is actually working on stuff. He's actually, like, trying to get better at stuff and right. build functional new parts into his game. And I like to see it. Uh, Gravely... I just expect him to go out there and be a wrestle boxer. And if he gets predictable over time with Munoz, there's no reason Munoz can't take his back and choke him out. It had happened several times before. And the guy that Gravely is now in the UFC is not that much different than yeah, he used to be. He, you know, he's still, he may have fought his way out of every one of them, but he still got stuck in like 12 guillotines from Simon Oliveira. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and again, we talk about camps and stuff. And yeah, Gravely's at American Top Team, and he's been there for a minute, so we don't have to worry about the adjusting thing. But frankly, I don't think it matters to the fighter like Gravely. Like to your point, yeah. we kind of know the fighter he he is and is gonna be. So it, that that stuff really doesn't matter here, though. Yeah. I'm gonna pick him anyway. I'm I'll pick him too, just because I know he'll start out hot and he'll come out and he'll land big shots and he'll get takedowns early in this fight, but. I, I won't lie. I'm 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 worried about him just running his way out of this, just doing the same thing over and over to the point that Munoz has an answer to it. You know, like Geraldo de Fritas is much craftier than Munoz, but is much less athletic. Yes, and fought gravely to a hard split decision. 
just by being tough and being able to adapt and being like keeping on trying stuff. So, and then, you know, then beating, beating guys like Simon Oliver and Anthony Burchak who have big obvious holes in their game. This just doesn't impress that much. Yep. Those team and triumph fighters can make big jumps too. I know we talked, we've talked about, at least I did about like Brandon Moreno leaving in a shakeup, but that didn't stop uh, what's his name from lighting up our boy, Frank Camacho there. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so the, the leave room for surprises too. I feel you. Yeah. All right. Odds on the bout. Gravely is a slight favorite here. Opened at minus 150, dropped to minus 170. He's currently up at minus 135. Munoz opening at plus 130. is currently down at plus 111. Getting closer and closer. I don't know. I'm, I'm slightly regretting not picking Munoz, but we're going to move on. Flyweight bout. Jalgas Zhumagulov, Jeff Molina, and um, <clears throat> this is kind of... Uh, this is a tough pick for me because Molina is the kind of guy that I love to see do well at flyweight, but I don't, I don't, I, I don't expect him to be able to continue to do well all the time. And Jalgas Jumagulov is the kind of guy who should be much better than he is. Like. Yes. Molina is out there overperforming, and Zhumagulov is out there underperforming. And where they meet on that spectrum right at this moment, I don't know. Because you know, Jeff Molina is just not that athletic. He's not that fast for a flyweight. He's not that strong for a flyweight. He's not uh, you know, that powerful for a flyweight. But He's dogged as hell, and he's got all the right ideas. Dude understands how to fight. And that's run him out to two straight wins in the UFC right away. He knows when to throw what. He knows how to throw it. He knows how to get on people and stay aggressive, how to scramble with them, how to keep fights hard and to turn fights against opponents when they start to flag. He he has a great understanding of what to do in the cage. And Jalgas Jumagulov fights like a bantamweight. He he just does not have a flyweight pace. And mm. he came to the UFC from a circuit that, you know, it, it really allowed him to be a slower paced fighter than he was gonna see in the UFC. And it's cost him a lot. He's tried. He's trying to correct it. Clearly, he came out like a house on fire against Manal Cop in their fight, just absolutely putting his strikes together, pushing the pace on Cop, making you know, trying to make the fight happen and have you know, make up for the losses to Amir Albazi and Halian Paiva. And the result was that Cop. Knocked him out. Like cop, you know, he, he he the discomfort. The reason why he doesn't fight at that pace became clear. It's because he's not comfortable fighting at that pace because he hasn't done it for his whole career. He's been a very slow paced ones and twos control, take you down, out wrestle you. Yep. We don't. We're not going to scramble that hard. Kind of fighter. And 
the you know it's it's a hard adjustment trying to figure out how to to be somebody else at this level. I think I'm going to pick Jeff Molina in this fight because Jeff Molina knows how to fight like a flyweight. He knows how to push the pace. He knows how to be aggressive. He knows how to stay with somebody and to make his strikes count when he gets the opportunities. But, you know, more physical guys are going to start bullying Jeff Molina. I have, I, I'm fairly confident in that. And it could be that Zhumagulov is that guy. Because he was totally hanging with Manal Kopp before getting knocked out. But, right. you know. I think the, the physicality is is going to be troublesome for uh, Zhaogash and Magulov here, too. But especially when you look at um, how he did against, uh, or, you know, how Molina did against Orichi Lang, the Mongolian murderer. You know, like, I remember rewatching that fight because I, I, that was another one I missed live. And I remember that being a big deal. I think he got a fight of the night. And it was a good fight. But I remember, like, the first, like, eight, seven or eight minutes, I'm like, wait, how does Jeff Molina win this fight? Yeah. Um, you know, because, like, you know, because, like, and, and, and I watched it also, doubly the effect, because I went back to watch it after his next fight where he would win um, already happened as well. So you're just like, huh? But he, he seems to get off a bit to a, a slower start, which doesn't. It's not going to hurt him here because obviously um, Jalgashu Magulov has a similar uh, weakness in his armor, if you will, that relates more to, as you said, Zayn the pace. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I, I do like Jalgas. Like, aside from the fact that, I don't know about you, Zayn, he kind of looks like the Kazakh version of Jim Norton, you know, doesn't he? <laughs> like, if Jim Norton and referee Tim Mills had a kid, like, that's oh, Jalgashu Magulov. But, anyways, random references aside, I don't know what I was smoking. I think I actually picked Jalgas to beat Manel Cap, like, just to kind of. Just, 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 it, which sounds silly with activity, but again, with kind of cop and the way he was, he was fighting, he was another guy's like, okay, is he going to come over and just start yeah. underperforming as well? And it was a more Cop of a has the same problem of being coming up on a circuit where you didn't have to fight at a UFC flyweight pace and he's having to learn the same lessons. Yes. And for that reason, despite the clear athletic uh, discrepancy, I felt that there could be spaces for him to win if he didn't get iced like he did. And, and, I, and if memory serves, I did think Zhao I think he landed some shots and kind of woke up the BC. He started off pretty well, but he could not yeah. keep that comfort and pace like, like you, you put out. Um, and I don't think a building pace will be as detrimental to a guy as experienced and, and as tough as him. Um, and Molina can crack for sure for his size. But I, I again, um, I don't know if he's as potent a knockout threat early, he's like, not. like, you know, so I would honestly think that this goes to a decision where not just so much the pace, but also the more impactful and the more eye catching shots, I believe are going to come from Molina in this contest. So I think Molina by decision is, um, again, you know, I'd be more than happy to be surprised and a lot can happen. And I think it'll be an entertaining fight. I don't mean to sound reductive, yeah. but I just feel like Molina by decision is what I just can't help but see here. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I think just Molina knows how to, he knows how to fight like a flyweight. Mm -hmm. And uh, he does it really well, it, even in fights where, you know, like I, with the R. Chileng fight and with uh, the the fight he had against, uh, was it Daniel Silva? Uh, Lacerda, yeah, yeah some of that, yeah. yeah Daniel yeah. Lacerda da Silva, um, where the, his opponent comes out and can bully him physically early on. But Molina just he, he knows how to hang in a fight and to how to make it tougher for his opponent as the fight goes on. And 
Yeah, I just don't think Zhumagulov is going to be is going to let himself be potent enough to take Molina out of this fight at any point. So I got to pick Molina to 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 just build on the better moments as time goes on. Yeah. Um. But I say I'm still worried about Molina's physicality as a not especially strong uh, flyweight. And Zhumagulov, I think he's a pretty good athlete. It's just, you know, he really didn't he he didn't learn to fight at the kind of madcap scrambling flyweight pace that is very much the metagame of that division. Sure. So yeah, I'll take Molina, but we'll see. If Zhumagulov can get him, can like hold him against the cage or slow him down or just land a few big shots and have his moments. Maybe he wins. Maybe he, you know, maybe maybe he can just turn this fight into something like he, the fights he used to win. Or maybe, you know, just the fact that Molina doesn't punch like cop. Maybe if Molina or Zhumagulov comes out starting hot again, like he did try to against Mono Cop, maybe he can he can just put it on Molina physically. Yeah, and and bank around, and then he just needs one more close round to go his yeah. way. And yeah. maybe maybe that's why money is coming in his way, not to step on, but perhaps push yeah. to that part of the segment, or perhaps it's the win he has over to Jirulam Bekov. If you actually go watch that, yeah, that, that was that was super suspect. By the way, I'm yeah. not one to say that, or much less care or cry. But I I don't know if people get thrown off by that because I know Tajir gets held up there as well. Uh, Molina opened at minus 200, jumped up to minus 149. Is currently back out of minus 186. Zhumagulov opened at plus 170, dropped down to plus 124, and is currently back up at plus 153. I think those odds feel good to me. I like him. I like what Molina's doing. I don't like where Zhumagulov is. I think he's he's got a lot more to change about his career than Jeff Molina does. Um, and change is always an uncertainty. All right, sure. that brings us to a welterweight bout. Andres Mikolidis... Renat Fakretinov. I'm just gonna guess that that's how it's pronounced. Better than I pronounce it. Throw me off. The, 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 the stresses always throw throw me off on those Russian names. But Mikolidis Fakretinov and um, yeah, go go after it because I don't know what to make of this. Yeah, um, you know, Renat, uh, you can fuck right off because that's a pretty big price. Uh, minus three hundred as he's opened it. Sorry, uh, now that that's that's do not uh, take my pronunciation. That was terrible. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's funny. I guess the question is, when I look at this on paper, is is can Mikolaitis survive? Because that seems to be the best chance you get against uh, a, a finisher like this. Although it's like if you look at it, the fights that. Uh, Renat is going, he's going to decision with like random eight and four dudes. But then the names you might recognize, we just actually mentioned one, Alberto Uda, Astro Fight Team guy, um, as well as Eric Spicely, who's probably more recognizable. You know, he's still getting the job against those guys for what it's worth. But those guys, obviously, and as we kind of previously touched on, um, wild men in different ways, the different variations, but hurtable men nonetheless. Uh, Mikolaitis can be hurtable and he can get out of there. But um, when I pull up, Renats, and now I, I admittedly haven't been able to, to track down any of his fights yet. I know there are a couple at least flooding out there. But um, <laughs> I always love these little things. Is a GFC middleweight champion. Uh, when did you want to train for fighting? Since school. 
um, and freestyle wrestling is his favorite technique. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing he comes from a wrestling background. He likes the submissions as well as can can knock people out. Um, I get why he's favored. I'm gonna have to dive in this more to give you to to, to even uh, think of a think of a reason on why you should should pick or or, or stay away from either guy. But I uh, I won't disagree with the favorite. Yeah, I mean. But Kretanov, his his record is definitely a bit of smoke and mirrors. You yes. know, beating Eric Spicely, it's not bad. It it says that you can compete in some core ways, and you know, wins like Spicely and Uda, they say that you're, you know, that they they suggest that there is some real physicality to his game to put these guys away. Even them being more fragile, longtime pro fighters, they're still longtime pro fighters. You have to show up with something mm-hmm. to make that to to get those wins. But watching him fight, like it is a very slow-footed, awkward, just throwing overhand haymakers over and over again kind of style. Lots of confidence. Lots of uh, persistence and consistent pressure, but just really ugly power slugging. Um, yeah, I'm watching. Know. I'm watching him right now, and, and the thing is, it's it's well, the confidence almost makes it worse because what another characteristic I'm noticing is even when he's confident against a guy like Spicely, most recent opponent, most relevant sample size. Um, he looks like he's just so tense and loading up. Yeah. And just he's asking to uh, to repeat the performance of who's the uh, the the brother of the bagman Otman Abu Azatar. Like he Abu looks like Abu. a smaller. Doesn't he yeah. look like a small Abu Azatar who's just yes. asking to, to punch himself out? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that he doesn't get very tired after a short amount of time fighting that way. It's just yeah. The problem for Andreas Mikolidis is really that he's going to have whatever fight you want to have with him. Yes. Like there is no ability to control the type of fight for Andreas Nicolaitis. Yeah. Even, if a kickboxer wants to grapple with him, he'll grapple with a kickboxer. Is it so long yep. as the kickboxer wants to do it? Yep. And even like somebody like KB Bular, just, he whooped on him, but it still like went to three, went all three rounds of like slogging kickboxing against a, do- a guy who got absolutely iced in seconds by Tom Breeze, you know? Yep, yeah. It's, uh, he, he's got power. He has a, everything he throws, he throws, you know, he, there's no nuance to Mikolaitis' game. And... <sighs> I mean, that makes this fight with Fakretinov really, there's a high chance that it's just really ugly. Totally. Um, it, it could be that, oh, what's the fight I'm, I'm having in my mind right now? I don't, uh, Leo Santos might have fought this guy, and we haven't seen him since, was like a wild Russian guy who was like favored to beat him out of nowhere, but didn't have the experience. Oh, and then yeah, gassed himself yeah. Out. Like, I feel yeah. like it's just asking for that fight. Granted, Mikolaitis is not Leo Santos, even old Leo Santos, yeah. but still. Like, yeah, the guy uh, who had the the neo Nazi corner and yes, fouled yes. repeatedly. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we're 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 due for, for one of those, these performances from uh, Renat, and he hasn't even been in the UFC yet. But yeah, I, th- that does feel very like. I, I guess I'll take Fakretinov just because I know he's going to come out with like one game and try to have it, and Mikolitis is going to let him. But uh, I, yeah. I, it does. I don't feel good about it. I could easily. Mikolitis should win this fight if he wants to. It's just he doesn't. You know, he doesn't ever seem like he really cares what kind of fight he's having. And especially the guy who's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. You know, I know that they come in different ranks or whatever, and sure. not that you know, the Gracie is some like you know Godless isn't the '90s anymore. Yeah. But you know, he he does cite as a Gracie Baja black belt and cites yeah. where he got it from. You know, and then I count that a little more than just you know when they actually cite who your instructor and where your school is and if it's somewhere notable. But if you look at his fighting style again, like yeah, he's happy to grapple against the clinch with kickboxers, but. You know, as far as his, like you said, he'll he'll slog it out with KB Bueller, who it's just like, what are you what are you doing trying to kickbox this tall guy who can be obliterated on the feet too? Granted, but I'm just yeah, it, there's, there's not no a nuance in his game. And he came in, and not to to stereotype, but you, we, we mentioned this before, a previous fighter, he came in in the 2020 kind of uh, pandemic yeah. era. So you hate to say, that, you know, who are we? Me and Zane are arbiters of who who deserves to be in the UFC. But at the same time, you're like this guy really deserved to be here. Would he have gotten here if not for both the pandemic and the ultimate filling content era? You got to ask yourself that too. Luckily, just opened at plus 250, dropped to plus 236, and is currently down to plus 220. Uh, for Kretanov, opened at minus 300, and is currently up at minus 278. Those odds should only be getting shorter and shorter. Yes. Um, there's nothing about for Kretanov that suggests that he is going to have a fruit highly fruitful or successful ufc run unless he makes major improvements to his game and yep considering that he's 30 and has been competing for a decade almost now it seems much more likely that he's just the dude he's gonna be yep don't disagree with that that brings us finally to our opening bout of the card aaron blanchfield jj aldrich a fight that is far better than every single prelim fight above it. In fact, far better than every fight up to the co-main event. So mm-hmm. I don't know what it's doing down here. I mean, you, you think too with uh, J.J. Allridge being in the, you know, uh, being a regular in Stranger Things, they just released their season. You think oh, they might God. want to get a bit of a pump there. I'm sorry. I think it's yeah, entertaining. Yeah. All right. Um, but yeah, these two women are just more talented and like more interesting fighters than the bulk. Maybe not Molina Zhumagulov. Maybe Molina Zhumagulov, Blanchfield Aldrich, those fights should belong on the main card over Pollyanna Batelho versus Kareen Silva and Ode Osborne versus Avruka Dashev. But Blanchfield is, you know, this is going to be... I, I, I have long sung praises of J.J. Aldrich for being a much better fighter than she gets credit for. And then every now and then she just goes out and has one really bad loss that erases all of the interest or like slow skill building that she's done over the years. Yes. Oh, you're preaching to me right now. Absolutely. Yeah. She's like a really 
functional ones and twos boxer who tries really hard to learn good technique for her striking, even though she's not the fastest or the heaviest handed fighter out there. She's a good, solid fundamentals wrestler who knows how to, you know, how to hit a shot appropriately and can be a really good, solid top control grappler. And it's all just really functional, slow skill building that she's been doing for years and years and years. And then she'll just go out and like get wrecked by Macy Barber and all after having a really good round and all that will just kind of vanish or she gets split decision by Sabina Mazo and it just vanishes. And I think that's going to happen again here with Aaron Blanchfield because I think Blanchfield is just a craftier wrestler. Yes. Um, and this is going to sound the wrestling is going to sound really odd to make the uh, a comparison to Kamaru Usman. Uh, nothing in style or athleticism or accolades or any of that. But as far as this, like, I remember breaking down Usman earlier on in his career and saying everything just, just seems really high percentage of choices, which mm-hmm. ended up be, ended up being true and it's probably not a coincidence and why he has such a good record. Yeah. But um, within her own version, within her own world, you know, uh, the context of division and those caveats now included with that example, of course, um, that's where I see the similarity as far as Blanchfield in her decision making. And it feels like she's always making good decisions in there, which is just understated in MMA and how, how valuable that is. You know, we, we see enough fighters make bad decisions time and time again to where you think you'd learn. And that's just not as, as the human nature in the fight game is not uh, as sensible as we'd like to make it. So when you do see a fighter, even if they're not overwhelming, um, when they're making good decisions over and over again, that's just huge, especially yeah. against someone who's talented. But like you said, you know, can, I don't even want to call her, you know, uh, inconsistent because I have such high hopes no, for her yeah, too. She's greatly consistent. She's just yeah. not very. She's just not a very good athlete, and she didn't come from a, a great MMA base. She didn't start out with a bunch of skills, right? So you, you know, she's just having to build everything from the ground up. Which I remember that dynamic kind of made it really difficult, at least for me, to pick um, her fight against um, Jillian Robertson, JJ yeah. Aldridge's. Yeah. But uh, and I, I kick myself because again, you know, I, I love I love a good southpaw. She comes from a taekwondo base, like like myself, but actually taught herself. You know, boxing is more important. Let's l- learn how to work from the stance, which I appreciate. And you like to see those things rewarded. And uh, you know, she's got a real kind of underdog vibe to her that I can't help but root for. So I'd be happy to be wrong here, but um, all signs for me point to another Blanchfield. Blanchfield decision based yeah. on the small cage um, and her getting, you know, th- that create helping create opportunities where we already see Blanchfield make high percentage choices. Yeah. If she's making high percentage choices and if she's hitting good takedowns against somebody who's not a way better at, like she made that, she did that against Miranda Maverick and Miranda Maverick is a good athlete. Mm-hmm. And she just was able to manhandle her all over the cage, woman handle her all over the cage. Um, so if she can do that to Maverick, I don't see Aldrich having a really obvious competitive answer, even if she's a more consistent fighter than Maverick. Uh, she just doesn't have that kind of physicality, and that's what you really need in those kinds of tie-ups. Yep. So odds on the bout. Blanchfield is a large favorite, open at minus 275. Uh, currently down at minus 550. 
Uh, Aldrich opened at plus 235, kind of plus 388. I hate to see it, but I understand because Aldrich is also not a finisher. So if you're looking at a fight where somebody just seems like they have a skill advantage against an opponent that is not going to finish them, it's really hard to pick J.J. Aldrich to win this fight. Totally. This looks like another parlay anchor for a lot of people with that, yep. that line, too. All right, on that note, we're going to wrap everything up. You can find me on Twitter at These Anytime. You can find Dan on Twitter at DanTomMMA. You can find me over at Bloody Elbow. You can find Dan over at MMA Junkie. Dan, thanks again for joining us. I will be back next week for UFC 275. Until then, everyone, see you later. Thank you for listening to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, hop over to the Bloody Elbow Presents SoundCloud and iTunes pages, as well as subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We are also on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you will get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, The Mookie and Crookie Show, The MMA Vivisection, The Level Change Podcast, the sixth round post fight show, sixth round retro, the MMA depressed us, Crooklyn's Corner, exclusive fighter interviews, show money, and radio style play by play for every UFC pay per view. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloody elbow blog, and as always on bloodyelbow.com. <laughs>